This is Revelation 19. We did Revelation 18 last week. This is a beautiful chapter of Scripture. And uh, remember, I think Pastor Hyatt said it, this is a, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. So as we read this, just, just you're reading a good story. Uh, it's true, and it's God's Word, but you're hearing an illustration, a, a hyperbole in some ways, a, a, a great vision of things that are true and right about our Lord and us. Hear this, Revelation 19. After this, I, that's John the Apostle, heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants, and again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters uh, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for right for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of spirit of prophecy. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the wrath of God Almighty. Excuse me, (laughs) to strike down the nations, sorry. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. 
The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is the word of God. Not the nicest ending, um, but this is chapter 19 of Revelation, the word of God. In 1984, you're laughing because you know I'm going out on a limb on this one. Yeah, I am going out on a limb. And when you hear what I'm about to quote, you'll, you'll agree. Um, in 1984, a singer by the name of Bonnie Taylor released a song holding out for a hero. Now, which has the following lyrics. Now, you might feel the need to laugh. Hold on to your seat a little tighter just to get through the utter corniness of this song and its words. Okay, but it was you back in 1984 that wearing the fluorescent shirts. George Michael was was an artist of the highest degree to you guys. So don't laugh now. Look down, those shoes had fat shoelaces. Some of you had belts with your names on it. Some of you were wearing spikes and breakdancing, bringing cardboard to schools. Here we go. Where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and I turn and I dream of what I need. I need a hero. I'm holding out for for a hero to the end of the night. He's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero to the morning light. He's got to be short and he's got to be soon and he's got to be larger than life. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero to the end of the night. Somewhere after midnight in my wildest fantasy, somewhere just beyond my reach, There's someone reaching back for me, racing on the thunder and rising with the heat. It's going to take a Superman to sweep me off my feet. I'm going to laugh. (laughs) Up where the mountains meet the heavens above, out where the lightning splits the sea, I can swear there is someone somewhere watching me. Through the wind and the chill and the rain and the storm and the flood, I can feel his approach like fire in my blood. Now, why would I? I consider myself a respectable music lover. Believe, why would I put us out on a limb with this song with such a serious message as the one before us in chapter 19? I mean, this song is so cheesy, so corny, because it's so, uh, how can we say it? It's so desperate. It's so needy. It's so broken. It's so hard up. It's so much like a child. It borders on, just like the song says, fantasy. You know why we laugh? You know what makes you feel uncomfortable? Because truly we share a human neediness, a human desperation for help, some kind of hero somewhere in our lives for for someone who will come and change our world and love us and see us and save us. But we laugh at songs like these because a hero is a fantasy that that, that shouldn't be expressed with such emotional freedom. And you and I are unwilling to be so needy 
to wish for or die on some hill of heart desperation to wait for someone to come and do what we must, which is to simply in hard times suck it up, put your big boy underwear on and deal with the loneliness, deal with the pain, deal with the poverty, deal with the injustice and the fear and uncertainty. To just deal with it yourself, but don't write some corny, cheesy song of needy desperation. What Revelation shows us now that we're at the end is just that. We need a hero. In our broken and fallen world, as we saw more clearly last week in our look at Revelation's description of Babylon, believers and unbelievers alike are bothered and badgered and injured and confused by the spirit and philosophies of the age. You and I are trapped, we're tricked in our need for security and love and peace. And yes, Bonnie Taylor's 1984 song is not far from the gospel. That we are sinners in a sinful world. And Jesus is a savior, let's call it a hero of sinners. That, that you and I truly depend on his works, on his being there, on his return, his riding on the thunder and the light to make things right. And as Taylor says, sweep us, his, his people off their feet out of this world. Yes, in some metaphorical way to love us, to romance us with, with unconditional love. To rescue his people from unseen corruption. We're looking for someone to come and robe us with beauty that's left us. To to reward his people with honor that has been taken. We definitely, in a cheesy, yes, but serious desperation, need a hero to redeem this fallen and messed up world. We need someone who will finally fully come with justice, who will make things right forever, who will bring rest to a tumultuous world. We need a hero. And in this text, Jesus answers that need now and forever. To call Jesus the world's hero, the world's champion and savior is to give him and call him with the worship he deserves and earns that we join these choruses of heaven that we see in the beginning of chapter 19 with much better lyrics than Bonnie Taylor's song but with similar thought proclaiming we need and we have a hero that this text which is ultimately about the second coming of Jesus is a call to now worship and recognize him the hero Because he comes to redeem this world. We see that this hero rides with justice. Look with me at verse 11 in your scripture uh, text there. It says, I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True with Justice. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. 
That this is a repeat image of, of Jesus seen in chapter 1. And we have this blazing eyes. Now this goes back to this. That Jesus, when he sees your heart, his eyes are blazing in a way where he can burn off all the fakeness and falseness. So we see a coming Lord who has the ability to judge rightly. But with that, his very name here is faithful and true. Which means Jesus has the character to judge the world. What does this mean? He is perfect. He is untouched by falsehood. He, he's never been and he will never be hoodwinked. Nobody has or can corrupt him. And, and then he wears the crown. What does this mean that he comes with the authority as king to judge rightly? An authority no man or institution has given him. Jesus is not on any special interest group's payroll. He's not wearing the crown of England. He's not wearing the crown of the United States or China or Iraq. This crown says he is holy and assuredly neutral in this way. He is the king of kings and lord of lords with full and supreme authority over this whole world. All are under him and none is any more or less special in his eyes. And the horse means this. It says he's riding on a white horse, which, you know, is, is a steed going into battle. And it means that there's no more paperwork at his second coming. He's not stalling anymore. He's not putting us on hold in the surety and of his returning and coming justice. 911, Jesus is not a joke. You don't get a customer service call that will be answered in order it was received. No, what this is saying is when Jesus comes back, he is sure. He is a sure and safe place of justice for all that has gone wrong in this world. I need not convince you that in a world shrouded, what, in political agenda, Supreme Court justices going in and out, immigration agendas, racial profiling, a world in which when you get stopped for going five miles over the speed limit, it doesn't feel right when there are real criminals to catch. Marital strife that will get better as long as the other person sees the truth and changes, where it's the man's fault. Or rather a problem that we can outrun to the suburbs or wars against terrorism or, or living in a country that acts with what is it can describe, I'm not making a judgment here, as justice on other people's lands. Where being a white woman on trial assures you more leniency and being a black man assures you you are fighting an uphill battle unless you can run or shoot or throw a ball or sing or dance and then everything changes can i say it we need a just hero whose name is faithful and true against everything in this world that's halfway faithful and halfway true, a holy corrupt. We need somebody who's not on this side or that side, but stands on the side of true righteousness to come and make things right. That he would come and make things right in what could be described as an upside down kingdom. What do I mean by this? We've talked about this before through our study that much of what we read in Revelation, especially for believers, is, is, is hardcore. It's others, let me tell you what Revelation does. It's amazing how this works. 
Others, meaning unbelievers or people don't claim the name, that don't claim the name of Jesus, they seem to flourish in the reality of everyday prosperity and living, getting much of the world now, seeing the world of the now, and scripture and revelation more times than not represents a Lord, presents a Lord that can't be seen. And with all self proclaimed power with all the self-proclaimed power of God he tells his people who are dying and suffering to be patient as the world passes them by to to look to a Lord whose image is mainly in our world iconically trapped on a cross bleeding and weak but the upside down kingdom of of a suffering servant I mean, Christianity that is for weaklings, a needy people, is turned right side up by him. Look with me how it revert, how he reverses the tide. Look with me at verse 12. He has eyes like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his, and and his name is the word of God. The armies of the of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Revelation, the name of God is blasphemed. People cry out to Jesus. And we, we I went through this before. It's like people are saying, Jesus, hello, is God up there? Uh, your people are suffering. They're going through all kind of hell. We, we pray to your God. Why, why won't he do anything? Well, in this second coming of Jesus, it says he has a name that he himself, only he himself knows. What's that mean? That no longer... Can people who don't trust in his love or believe him as Lord blaspheme his name or call him what he isn't? He is what he is and he's undeniably the Lord of lords and king of kings. Then we have the blood on his robe. And for the first time in Revelation, it's not the blood of the saints. For the first time in the Bible, it's not the blood of those, it's not the blood of Jesus. But rather his robe is dipped because it's the blood of those who have hurt his people and hurt this world with evil. As a matter of fact, here's the vision. He is sitting on his horse and the bloodshed is so deep, so high that it touches the hem of his robe that we see the in verse 17, the, the consumer trend reverses. This is the upside down kingdom where Jesus bleeds and his people bleeds. And now he turns it right side up and those who are opposed to God bleed. Look with me at verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in the loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather for the great supper so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and, and mighty men and of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Now, remember what's happened so far in Revelation. I'll just remind you, especially we talked about Babylon. Resources, creation, are at the disposal of the world. 
So in other words, the birds, they get eaten up. The trees, they get burned up. All because of greed and corruption, creation itself hurts because of our sin in a sinful fallen world. But look how this trend returns. No longer is it the mighty people eating the birds and, and taking the resources. Now it's the birds gorging themselves on the people who control them. It's like the cows and chickens getting us back for overeating them or the trees coming back like in Lord of the Rings for for over harvesting them. I mean, I got this big tree in my backyard. I couldn't imagine that thing getting up and saying, why did you have to get a new house in South Atlanta? You killed my cousins. I'm I'm being silly here, but but the, the point is creation itself longs for redemption at Jesus's return too. This world suffers. Creation itself suffers and waits to be healed and redeemed. And I'm going to say this, fed by Jesus too. And then we read this verse in chapter 19. I mean, verse 19. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With those signs, he deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive in the lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now, I want to be clear to you. I want to show you here that it's the sword of Jesus' mouth that destroys the world that doesn't believe in him. It isn't the sword of, you know, now we're all moral and just and we're killing him. No, it's the righteous judge that is bringing judgment. But look what happens in this upside down kingdom. The army of the world, just imagine this picture. The arm, this is Armageddon, right? War of the worlds. Forget what, what, what you saw Tom Cruise do. Just the, the armies of the world who have decided Jesus' love, we don't want that. God's message of grace, we don't want that. We don't care that you died. We don't care about that message. We're good enough on our own. Groups of people, just hordes of people gathered up. And and, and at the front of them, the reason they're so confident they can beat Jesus is because they have the beast and the false prophet. Now, understand the beast and the false prophet have somehow pumped people's heads and their economies or their successes and their prosperity so much that they think, okay, we have the beast, the spirit of, you know, the, the spiritual enemy of God, this mighty force on heaven going before us. Man, we can't lose. Look at the beast. Look at the prophet in the Bible says the two of those are taken away. And the armies are left without their authority before them. Sitting ducks. How is this a reverse of the trend? Now it isn't those without the mark of the beast. Those who claim Christ who are left and feeling hopeless. It's those with the mark that were moving great in this world and and saying, forget all that gospel stuff and the wine and the bread and the blood and all that robe stuff. Forget all that. The people that that, that, that didn't see and receive, rather, the grace of God and, and rejected it. At this point, their security is down. He's turned the upside down kingdom right side up. 
Now in Jesus's writing here at his second coming, those that were once the world's weaklings, those that were once the world's foolishness, that have trusted him, stand behind him in the power of the Lord Jesus. And there is a quieting of the laughs and scorns and blasphemies of the Lord. And he has brought the world to rest and peace. It's a hard passage to hear. But understand it. In his coming, he brings rest to a, a mixed up and confusing world. He brings peace through war. But, but don't get it twisted here. For those of us who are pacifists or anti-old school war tactics, you know what I'm talking about, that, that, that are, you know, if the world goes our way, then it's peace. It's not it's not one country against another country. It isn't one morality against another morality. It's God in pure justice and faithfulness standing against the world. He determines peace and alone brings rest by his righteous actions. Why do we rest? Because it's faithful and true. There are no more questions about who is right. No more vain fighting over the, in this world like we do, like children over toys. No more fighting over lands and differing moralities or concepts of truth, whether yours is absolute and mine is sliding. No more moral wars over whether feeding the children or fighting abortion rights is better. The moral fights, the social and religious fights all end and find rest in his lordship. Because it's all about his relationship with the world as its king and savior. But what I want you to see is that this is that this war, this redemption is not a simple proposition. Jesus isn't coming simply about fulfilling the mandates of of some cosmic constitution. This hero Jesus is has always been about and acting out of God's love and relationship and desire to call people, to adopt people, to be his children, to be the very bride of Christ, that Christ's return and resultant war is not just about laying down the law, but for being united with his love. What we see Jesus coming is he's coming to redeem his bride. What I want us to understand is that this redeeming of his bride is a rescuing of his people. A cleansing of his people, a rewarding of his people has begun and continues right up to this glorious end that we see here in chapter 19. First of all, that he rescues his people from corruption. Now, this is good news. Considering where we were last week when we talked about Babylon, (laughs) it was hard. When we talk about how wrapped up we can get and forget how Jesus loves us, whether believers or unbelievers somehow we're caught up and, and wrapped up in a fallen world, we're, we're consumed by its promises and, and prosperity, and especially in this country. We want it now. We'll buy it now. We'll sacrifice family and friends and Jesus and everything else to get it now. That's for believers The frustration is increased since you belong to Jesus, but sometimes you find yourself in bed with other lovers. That 
believers, yes, you have been wooed to distrust Jesus by other things and other interests that you and I, we flirt with spiritual disaster. And after considering my own heart for other things than Jesus, realizing in utter despair, guess what? We're beyond being able to decipher and repair our own heart. When we talked about Babylon, we can't break a sins and a sinful world's hold on our hearts. We can't do it on our own. But this text gives us hope. Hope that comes only from what? A hero. That Jesus would rescue us and our hearts from all that hurts us in our relationship with him. Let's look at, let's look at verse 1 again. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. We talked about this last week a little bit in short. That in order for us to be freed from corruption, it's one thing for us to know what's right and wrong and be encouraged to do better. But with this text is saying something greater, Jesus is not only going to take away our addictions, he's going to take away the one who is pushing drugs, pushing idols on us, pushing issues on us. What does it mean that that, that he's going to destroy the spirit of the age and in this case to have the other lover taken away, destroyed for all time? And that's what the Lord Jesus does here. He rips the discontenting advertisements down. He takes down the bulletin boards. He dismantles the pornography rings. He tears the rungs off the success ladders. He dismantles philosophies and systems of thinking and living that make us dislike him and doubt his love for us. All that seeks to take his place is taken away. And we are just left seeing him in this clear, An awesome vision of love. Distraction free. The reigning Savior Jesus appears as the one lover, one Savior, one groom for his people. And the appropriate response is before us in this text. It's hallelujah. For he has redeemed his people from what corrupts them and makes them distasteful to him and even themselves. And then as if having the shackles of a distracting and destructive world were not enough that we can run to the Lord Jesus, this hero brings with him a robe, clothing fit for a queen. Bringing clothing for one who would be the very bride of the Lord Jesus. Now I want you to imagine it like this. What did Babylon teach us? That in many ways our hearts are like wandering the streets. We're just out there. 
going in this place and that place and having a relationship with this thing and that thing, kind of searching for feeling and security instead of in Jesus. And we kind of have this, we, 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 he has found us. And he's fought the riffraff off and, and that, that we believe loves us and, and he's picked us up off the streets. Because you and I, believers or unbelievers that become believers, we have been where we shouldn't have been here. We are covered in, in the makeup, in, in the paint and apparel of a prostitute. But who we are is not hidden from him. He takes us and he cleanses us and then he robes us in real beauty. The beauty only God can give as he forgives and receives sinners. Look with me at verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. What happens here? The Lord gives his people. His people stand for the bride. That's what the bride means. The Lord gives them a robe, a a dress, a, a covering. It's an outer representation of what is true about him and his people. That they, God's people, are clean and pure and get this, beautiful before the Lord. Verse 8 says that the linen stand for the righteous acts of the saints, but the acts of the saints are the work of Jesus through them. What is he saying? His people are clean because they wear wear clothing and are able to to fit that righteous clothing. What it means is just those of us who've been (laughs) just sleeping around in our hearts with other lovers, what is it saying when Jesus cleanses us for all times? We are okay wearing white at the wedding. You don't have to wear the dress that says you weren't all perfect. You don't have to wear the dress that says you were a sinner. You wear a dress that says you're, you're white for, you're, you're right for the wedding. You can wear white. What does it mean that Jesus has bought them? Is that the Lord has paid for their righteous standing? By his blood. Because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, his people look good to God. You look lovely to God. You look beautiful to God. I mean, imagine a wedding in Jesus the Lord of lords and kings of kings, he sees you and you're beautiful because you reflect the glory and honor that he alone has given you though though you didn't deserve it or earn it and even sometimes try to, to get rid of that. But the Lord has not dressed his people up, all dressed up with nowhere to go. But he dresses them because they are invited 
to be married to Jesus and sit and eat and receive in a place of honor with him. Look with me again. Look at verse 7 again. It says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the words of God. At this I I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. God's people, yes, those people despised by the world as foolish and desperate. Yes, those who were never very impressive, never the most beautiful or buff, those who may have never gotten all that they felt they deserved. Yes, those who, who sometimes slept around with other lovers, those who somehow love as they have forgotten Jesus died for them, will now be clothed in God-tailored clothing and get this, sit and eat and be honored by the host of heaven as God's special possession. This is hard to believe that his people would be heaven's honored guest. Yes, you, sinner, saved by grace. You will eat food fit and prepared and honorable for divinity will be called because he is so crazy in love with you that you will be called to eat with him. That you'll be called to sit next to God at the table. That this vision is an illustration of the result of the gospel that God has and does truly love sinners and truly does call them to be his children. That in a world where it seems that God is mean and says no and wait a lot, God is really and truly loving you now and will reward you with the works of his hands as those who have always been that special to him regardless of where you've been or how you've doubted him. In heaven one day and now his children are his honored guest and possession. That his children are in his heart. That you are the apple of his eye, a goal of his affection. That as they come to worship in him, as he speaks to them in his word, as they experience the fellowship of the saints, as they partake of the sacraments, they stand in limited and beginning degree how we will in heaven looked upon by thousands upon ten thousands of angels as special and beautiful and deserving, yet in their own works undeserving to receive his company, to receive wedding gifts that Jesus has spilled his blood to give, to be showered like unlike any bride has ever been showered on earth, to be showered with heavenly praise. And we can kind of understand as one who is 
who is a pastor of those who are persecuted? We can understand John. And then, you know, he's pastoring people who are persecuted and doubting, and he's persecuted himself. We can understand his response in verse 10. He, when he hears about the wedding feast, and he thinks about what Jesus has done and how beautiful they'll stand and, and how we'll be sitting in heaven at this table. we sitting next to God, and, and the angels are singing and, and celebrating because this great wedding is happening. John says, he, he, the Bible says John fell to his feet and began to worship the angel. He just got happy. He just got happy with the one bringing the news. He hears this thing about God's redemption. You know, he just got to high five somebody. And the messenger is bringing such good news that he can't contain himself and he bows down. I can imagine he has seen this vision and thinking, I'm God's like that? God loves his people like that? People who sometimes treat it and feel like and act like trash on earth because of Jesus will be honored in heaven as his bride? I mean, thank you, sir. I mean, you know, it's it's how you treat Bob Barker on The Price is Right. He didn't actually win or, or give you the gift, but you can't help it when you think about what you're receiving. But the angel is right. His children are honored now. And will be honored then as ones who are loved by God specially and all of heaven looks at them now with anticipation. The angels want this party to happen too. As a matter of fact, scripture says creation looks at God's people hoping that today will be the day that they go to be with Jesus because because they justified by faith through Jesus already have an irrevocable invitation and mark to be his. So that now, if we're distressed over sin, God's children are cleansed by Jesus. This text says that they're declared righteous and beautiful to him and are being made beautiful by him, but by him alone. And so the scripture called to go to him. Let him remind and tell you of his love for you, sinner. I mean, let the words of the gospel call you out of bed with your other lover and into his loving arms today. Let the words of his gospel once again, rinse the makeup of a sinful, covered-up life off and robe you in his loving righteousness. Some of us are distressed by our world. Things just won't and don't work right. Let these words comfort you. His children are blessed before him. His children are no more removed or out of his sight now than they will be as seated beside him in heaven. Your view may be blurred by circumstance, but his is not blurred. His people are his love. Go to him in your distress. And seeing these things is true. Don't bow to me or look to yourself or any other thing to worship, or run to some moral code or behavior change. 
but with wholehearted privilege as ones engaged to be the Lord, worship him with hallelujah and repentance. And after that, more hallelujah and more Jesus-trusting repentance. And then more hallelujah. For his people are holding on and are called without reservation to hold out for a hero. For they're called to hold on and be held by Jesus. We need this hero and his message for our world and our hearts today. Let us pray.